Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome to 2020. Today on the podcast, I'm going to look back on my interview with Doug from Pine Creek, uh, the popular atheist YouTube uh, channel, and then we're going to look back at a glance on the year of 2019 as well as look forward to the year 2020. My name is Hayden Clark, and this is Help Me Believe. Again, Happy New Year. Welcome to the year 2020. It's crazy to say that we are now in the decade of the 20s. My whole life that has referred to the 1920s, but now we are here in 2020. It's a bit uh, wild. 2019 was a great year. Uh, To kick off the new year, I'm going to... I don't have an interview this week, um, so I'm going to go back to an interview I did with uh, the atheist Doug from the popular YouTube channel Pine Creek. Our second interview, actually, we did an interview on his channel, or I guess actually our third interview, technically. We did an interview on his channel. He interviewed me. I had him on mine. I'm sorry, no, it is the second interview. Sorry, I can't count today. First interview was on his channel. The second one was on my channel, and I'm going to review uh, that, or at least the first half of the portion of that, because I've already done a few other uh, videos on the second half and some things that Doug said in the second half, but I'm going to look at the first half today. I think uh, Doug would be uh, honored to be featured as my first video of the year, so here we go. So the first part of this uh, interview that we did was about Doug's testimony or anti-testimony, deconversion, however you want to word that. It was about his story of coming to faith in Christianity and then also his subsequent story of how he fell out of faith, again, however you want to word that. Um, and I'll leave a link in the description to the insta- entire interview so you can watch that. It's it's worth watching. It was um, the conversation was enjoyable. I always love hearing from people, and so it was cool to hear Doug's story of conversion slash deconversion. So the first clip I'm going to play from the interview uh, comes after a, a bit of a discussion about Doug's con- uh, deconversion story, how he became a Christian, and then how he. Be- Um, became an atheist, not a Christian any longer. And so he was telling me about how that process went about, and he's talking about, without actually using the phrase, this quote-unquote outsider test of faith. And so he's talking about how he began to view Christianity from the standpoint of a non-Christian, whether it be a Muslim, uh, I think he named uh, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, as well as uh, skeptics. And so this viewing things, viewing Christianity from the outside, Uh, from the perspective of somebody that's a non-Christian, began to, I guess, cause him to doubt, or that sort of thing. And my response was that I could see how this outsider test of faith would make you question things, or um, look at things from a new perspective, and that's always helpful. Of course, I encourage that. Um, Most Christian apologists do. It's more or less just saying we should look at things critically, which is exactly what we do here at Help Me Believe, and every other Christian apologist I speak to would say the same thing. Um, And so I could see how it would cause somebody to look introspectively like that and examine things critically, but it shouldn't at least uh, cause you to give up your beliefs. I mean, you would need something else, so you would have to say, well, this caused me to look at things critically, but it was this point that changed my view of, say, the argument for the existence of God or the argument for the resurrection. Something You would need something else to change your mind, and so I was interested in getting at that, and so that's... uh, um, where we come to this first clip. People do not, <laughs> here's my uh, strong opinion, people do not enter beliefs or leave them because of arguments. Right. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. But um, it, it, we're, there's entering the, into beliefs and, and exiting beliefs and then what is true, what is false. Like, 
you may um, you may you may enter into a true belief for a bad reason or something like that but we're going to know whether or not it's true or false based on the evidence and reason right well we think we will uh how many times in history have we thought we've known something and we turned out to be wrong well if it turned out to be wrong how did we know that it turned out to be wrong it's like we we it turned out to be wrong because of the evidence and the reason right 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 and so um so I, that's part of the scientific method of having provisional beliefs, provisional knowledge, until we get new information. Yeah, but, sure. But I think, um, I think we do change our minds based on evidence. But sure. I don't think that's the majority of the time. I think, well, I think, I think actually very few people can do it. Um, no, I agree. I, you know, uh, have you read Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind? Uh, no, but I'm I'm familiar with it, and I've read some of it. But yeah, and that's exactly what I'm saying here. Yeah, no, that, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah, I think yeah. that's definitely true. It's, it was definitely true for for me. Um, I think it's it would probably be true if I left Christianity. I think it's kind of uh, I don't know. See if you agree with this or not. Do you think it's kind of a combination of both? I think you kind of got to see it from the different perspective, like you're talking about, and see that eh, it would be okay if I was an atheist. You know, whether you know for emotional reasons or whatever, I could be an atheist, yeah. And then you, and then you gotta convince yourself uh, of the rationality and the reasonableness of it. Do you think that's probably the case? Uh, I think it's eighty twenty. I think uh, probably eighty percent of what we do, how we behave, how we live our lives, um, is because of these level one intuitive emotional type factors that we might not even be aware of and then maybe there's 20 percent that we sit down and objectively try to sort through things and and figure out what's true or not based on the evidence so i found this uh, clip to be mind-blowingly honest not because i think it's like a weakness in uh, doug's position or on his part or anything like that um in fact you hear me say that i'm I believe this is how I became a Christian, not because of, say, the historical argument for the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus or because of the Kalam cosmolog cosmological argument for God or something like that, but because of an experience I had and because I saw the gospel as beautiful and I would argue that the internal witness of the Holy Spirit was testifying uh, to me of the truth of the gospel. Now, that would all be subjective nonsense to a skeptic, and that's fine. I wouldn't actually use that as an argument to defend Christianity. I would uh, talk about the historical argument for the Gospels and the resurrection as well as uh, you know the standard arguments for the existence of God. But what blew my mind here about Doug's honesty was that he was saying that his deconversion from Christianity wasn't really about the evidence or reason and the arguments, that that stuff did not come until later, which is perfectly fine with me. As I said, I'm not going to use that against him or against the atheist. Uh, if you listen closely, though, I made the distinction between belief, epistemology, and what was true, so maybe ontology or something like that. So I said, you may come to believe something for bad reasons. For example, if you think believing uh, Christianity based on experience is a bad reason, but the belief could still be true. So the way in which you came to believe something doesn't tell us anything about uh, whether or not it's true or false. You may come to believe in Jesus because of a warm, fuzzy feeling or something, but that doesn't mean make the belief false any more than it makes the belief true. So what makes a belief true or false? And the short answer is, does it correspond to reality? So based on the evidence and the reason, is X, a proposition, more plausibly true than false? That's how we come to know what is true and what is false. 
And so this is just the the distinction, the point that I was trying to make to Doug, and I take it that he, he actually agrees, but he just finds, I guess, the epistemology, the, the way in which we come to believe things more interesting or perhaps even more important, I'm not sure. Uh, so this whole seeing things from a different perspective or this outsider test of faith uh, is all well and good, but I don't think it helps us to arrive at what is true and what is false. It's a helpful methodology to see the potential flaws in one's position, but, but it does not itself... Uh, tell us which position is true or, f true or false. Something else is needed. So I asked Doug outright what made him change his mind on Jesus, and this was his answer. But, uh, like, which argument was it that before you thought it was true, and then because of this, now you saw it was false? Am I making any sense? Well, I, you're, I, I can tell you're approaching this like a philosopher, like that you're looking for some type of deductive or inductive argument. That's not how people operate in real life. <laughs> right, but you, you, we both establish that, yeah, we make decisions emotionally, and then we start looking for justifications. So this is, but this I is, doubt that that's what you wanted to see. That this is, uh, if you want an argument, this is the, um, I'll call it the what's more likely argument, but it's okay. not a formal argument. It's what's that's more fine. likely, what's more likely that Jesus, that the authors of the New Testament wrote in a new Moses, a new Elijah, a new Elisha that in the character of Jesus, or that Jesus actually walked on water, or that mm -hmm. Jesus actually rose from the dead. What's more likely? And when you start asking those types of questions, you realize if you have nothing invested and you don't care about heaven and hell, you'll see very quickly that, oh, Mark was a brilliant author. He took what he saw in the Old Testament and he created a new narrative. And that the Jews, some Jews, a very small sect of Jews, reinterpreted, and even Michael Lacona says this, reinterpreted the Old Testament narratives to come up with a, a dying and rising Messiah. And so when you ask the what's more likely question, the what's more likely argument, I think you'll find it is more likely that this is a story built upon Old Testament narratives. Not to say it's all fiction, not to say sure. it's all made up, but that it's um, it's a great piece of, of work, especially I think Mark is amazing, and, um, and the other Gospels borrowed from Mark, Mark borrowed from Paul, Paul and Mark borrowed from the Old Testament, and that that's, seems like a better explanation that we have this man 2,000 years ago who walked on water, made the lo divide the loaves and fish, and, and rose from the dead. So he kind of criticizes me, not really, but uh, indirectly for approaching things as a philosopher and looking for deductive and inductive arguments. But really all this is is really just being reasonable and rational as opposed to making decisions based on emotion or fallacious reasoning. Uh, we've already established, uh, Doug and I, that people tend to make emotional decisions first and then back up their decision with evidence and reason. But surely Doug would agree that we should try not to do that. Um, that we should try to make decisions on a reasonable and rational basis. Now, I was assuming that he would not want to admit that he came to be an atheist for intuitive or emotional reasons, but that once he viewed things from an outsider perspective, he saw his previous reasoning was flawed or something like that. And at, at first it seemed like he was a bit reluctant to do so, but eventually he said that he found it more likely that the Gospel writers um, made up these stories about a real historical figure, Jesus, uh, in light of their Old Testament. So he doesn't deny that, you know, I don't think he's a Jesus mythicist or something like that, but there really was a Jesus. He did some stuff, um, but these miracles and things were made up and attributed to him uh, based on 
reinterpretations of Old Testament scripture or something like that. So a few comments uh, on this uh, hypothesis that Doug puts forward, and then we'll move on. First, um, this whole what's more likely uh, by itself just begs the question. The question then becomes, well, why did you come to view this as more likely? Uh, I assume he has reasons, but he didn't state them here. So as it stands, this just begs the question. You can't just say, well, what's more likely that these things actually happened or that they were made up? They were made up. Well, you're missing a whole lot of premises there, or at least some premises there, as to why that's more likely. That's just an assumption. We actually need evidence and reason, and it took me a while to get him this far, so I wasn't going to uh, divulge on the subject there. I wanted to move on to some other questions. Now, second, this is a theory that fascinates me because uh, there, there are Old Testament parallels in the New Testament. You can clearly see you know, some of them. Uh, but you would expect this if Jesus really was the Jewish Messiah. There are Old Testament prophecies about the Jewish Messiah that would be true of Jesus if indeed he was the Jewish Messiah. So these similarities, far from being a defeater, they're expected on both hypotheses. So of course we will find parallels between Jesus and the Old Testament if indeed he was the Jewish Messiah. And these parallels would be expected on Doug's hypothesis as well if they were indeed making it up in light of Jewish prophecies and things that they found in the Old Testament. So they're ex it's expected on both hypotheses. So we have the data that it looks like they're they're either fulfilling the Old Testament, you find the Old Testament text kind of uh, reworked or something like that in the New Testament. But which hypothesis is more likely still stands to reason. We haven't we need something else to distinguish which one is more likely. Third, they would need to be examined on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, the person hypothesizing that the miracle stories about Jesus are just rewrites of Old Testament narratives would have to first show uh, literary dependence. So they can't just be similar. They have to be literarily uh, textually dependent on the Old Testament. So often the devil is in the details, and what you find is a general motif that the narratives hold in common, but no actual literary dependence. We'd have to examine them individually, and uh, Doug didn't uh, give us any examples here, though presumably he could have. Uh, but again, even then, we would expect this if Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. His disciples would have recognized this and seen it in their Old Testament. So we would need another way of distinguishing between the two hypotheses. Now, this would, however, be a valid, or I would say a good reason for rejecting Christianity if you come... Um, on some better as if you had some actual evidence and good reasoning to believe that this hypothesis was more likely than the hypothesis that they were telling the truth or that Jesus uh, really was the Jewish Messiah, that would be a good uh, reason for rejecting Christianity. So Doug did answer the question here, at least to some degree. So this is how Doug goes from being a Christian to being a deist which intrigued me, I didn't, wasn't aware of, he, that he does not go straight to atheism. That's why I thought he did. Uh, so this was uh, intriguing and interesting to me. Uh, eventually, he does go from deism to atheism, and he says he was just kind of holding on to deism for no good reason. Uh, and here's why he eventually let go of deism in his own words. It actually wasn't even atheist. It was just myself at the okay. time, just poking holes in. Like, do I really believe that there has to be a mind, a personal mind, to be the first cause of our universe? No. No, it's like we don't know. And it's so arrogant and conceited to think that we know what happened prior to the Big Bang, if even that makes sense, uh, before, before the expansion of our reality, our universe. We have no clue what is before that moment. And, um, and sure, it could have been a deity, but on what basis do we say that, that it has to be? Um, so that's that's basically, I was poking holes in myself. 
So this was an interesting statement. He says he does not believe the cause of the universe was a quote-unquote personal mind, but then says that we do not know what happened prior to the Big Bang. Now, this would be a formal contradiction, and I was ready to call it out for uh, how could he know... How could he not know, and at the same time know that it was not a personal mind? However, he did restate that it could have been a deity, so he, he did uh, change it up there a little bit. So that was clarifying, and in speaking off the cuff like this, uh, we often say things that aren't very clear and that sort of stuff. And so I don't always feel the need to call people out on what looks like a formal contradiction. Um, and you got to be paying close attention in real time to be able to call it out anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But uh, I, I know I do this all the time, and a little charity goes a long way. So I didn't really find this a good reason to reject God's existence and thought that hearing uh, Doug's response or his rebuttal to an argument for God's existence would be helpful. So I laid out the cosmological argument to hear his response, and uh, that argument goes like this. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause, and therefore the cause of the universe, since the universe is all space, time, and matter, must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. And this... This being that is spaceless, timeless, immaterial, and caused the universe to come into existence, that's what we are referring to when we use the word God. So here was Doug's response to that. I just did a video on this, uh, and I think it works for almost any philosophical argument for a deity. Isn't it more reasonable that a non-supernatural something can explain the first cause of our universe rather than a new category of something that we call supernatural? Okay, so I never used the words natural or supernatural in my argument, so this objection cannot be an objection to the Kalam per se. We'll eventually get to somewhat of an objection, but we camp out here for quite a while. Now, the beauty of the Kalam is its simplicity. It's short, it's succinct, the premises are very clear, and the conclusion follows logically from the premises. That is to say, in order to avoid the conclusion, you must deny one or more of the premises. Bringing up supernatural, natural, has nothing to do with the truth value of the premises or the logic of the argument as a whole, which is obviously airtight. So, this response is reminiscent of Doug's what is more likely about Jesus. Just like in that case, it just simply begs the question, not to mention it avoids the argument of the Kalam altogether. This is why I like getting down to the specifics. Why specifically does someone reject the Kalam? If they do not object to one of the premises, or the logic of the argument itself, then you've got a red herring on your hands, which is exactly what we have here. It's just a distraction. It has nothing to do with the argument whatsoever. But for the sake of argument, let's just grant Doug's premise that natural causes are more common than supernatural causes. So what? That's still not an objection to the Kalam. The premises still stand, and the conclusion still logically follows. However, I don't grant uh, this. I don't grant this because I genuinely have no idea what someone means by natural or supernatural. Without a definition of natural, I definitely don't know what supernatural is. Um, and you may find this dishonest that I don't know what these words mean. That I'm just pretending not to know these words for some rhetorical point. But the ensuing dialogue that Doug and I have should show that these words are indeed vacuous and misleading, and I avoid them at all costs for these reasons. Here's what Doug finally tells me that natural means. So a non-supernatural thing, I could just give examples, and that is this cup, sounds that you're hearing right now, sights that you're seeing. I would call that a non-supernatural thing. Right. Things. So things that the universe is made of. So in my response, I decided to take the word natural as, quote-unquote, things the universe is composed of, as opposed to 
material or physical, uh, which Doug consented to. I did this intentionally to point out the, um, that obviously the universe could not be out, uh, could not be brought into existence by something that the universe itself is composed of. For then it would have to already exist in order to bring itself into existence. And here's his response to this unspoken objection. Yeah, uh, but here's the thing. That's one category of things that could be in a different dimension, different time, different space. There could be something before our Big Bang that where um, was completely different than our laws of nature. Like the Big Bang is the beginning of the expansion of our reality, our universe with its known laws. Mm. It says nothing but what happened before then. All right, so he's actually making two points here as far as I can tell. And first one is that matter, space, and time could exist in a different way in a universe prior to our own. So first, he would have to present evidence of this, obviously, uh, which he doesn't. Um, otherwise, there's no reason to believe it. If there's no evidence that such a place exists, there's no reason to believe it at all. Secondly, I'm, I don't think it's coherent to begin with, so it doesn't matter. <clears throat> The universe just is all space, time, and matter, which would include the space, time, and matter of a different or prior universe. And if the space, time, and matter of this alternative universe that Doug is uh, postulating is actually so different, if this matter, space, and time is actually so different than our own matter, space, and time, then it seems that you're just talking about something altogether different. You would no longer be talking about matter, space, and time. You would be talking about something else, and then you're just calling it matter, space, and time. Uh, matter would be the easiest example. So something is either material, that is sensible, that is known to our five senses, or it's not. There's, there's no alternative or middle ground. Uh, you can either sense something, like this table or this coffee cup, or you cannot. So it's, it's not as if there are alternatives to material and immaterial or sensible and non-sensible. Those are your only two options. A thing is either sensible or it's not sensible. A thing is either material or it's not material. There's not some other kind of material that you can postulate like Doug is trying to do. It's, it's either material or it's not. And if we can sense it with our five senses, which presumably we would have to in order to know that it exists that something material would exist, we'd have to be able to sense it. And if we can sense it, then it's just material. There's not other definitions of material. And again, even if we granted that such a thing existed, it would have no effect on the Kalam whatsoever. I don't see the connection at all. And the second point he seems to make in this statement is going back to this quote-unquote prior to the Big Bang talk, which is something I never said, something I never brought up. I never mentioned Big Bang cosmology once, so I don't know why it's being brought up. I didn't say that the standard Big Bang model holds that the universe has an absolute beginning, though many scientists and philosophers think that is the case. I much preferred the purely philosophical arguments very beginning to the universe, like the impossibility of an infinite number of past successive events. What happened prior to the Big Bang does not matter to me. Whether the universe began 14 billion years ago at the Big Bang or not, I believe the universe began to exist on philosophical grounds. So we do finally get back to the actual argument when Doug asks this question. Do you know that something, that unknown something that's material, that's not supernatural, could have always existed or not? Do you know I, that that's impossible? That's what I was just talking about, the actual infinite. Do you know that that's impossible? Now, the constant interrupting and repeating the question before I have an act, a, a chance to answer is 
obviously arrogant and an attempt to intimidate me as as if I'm trying to sidetrack the question right the whole interrupting is, is pretending like I'm trying to sidetrack the question you wouldn't know if I'm trying to sidetrack the question because I haven't been able to answer yet I'm actually trying to answer him directly and what I was going to say was uh, on track with the actual number of physical events being impossible and that time falls upon the physical so yes it is impossible and we can know it but he wasn't allowing me to answer after that we circle our wagons and we came back to doug's original objection well here's one it's isn't like it you, more re- okay, here's ahead. one isn't uh-huh. it more reasonable to state that a non-supernatural something has always existed rather than a new category something called supernatural has always existed but i'm not postulating something supernatural because i don't know what that means and you just I need said you, it, I, need, I need you to define it would you i think you just defined it when you said immaterial did you not and there we have it the word natural has reduced to nothing more than the material and the word supernatural has been reduced to the immaterial and so the reason it is important to reduce these words to what they really are is this if we use words like natural and supernatural we might fall prey to doug's little what is more likely why because because he's defining the stuff of our everyday experience as the natural Isn't it more likely that something we are familiar with on a day-to-day basis is more like what caused the universe uh, as opposed to something we're not familiar with? Well, not if you reduce the word natural to material, which it obviously means even according to Doug's own illustrations. In fact, it becomes logically impossible. It is logically impossible that something material could bring um, um, all of matter into existence. That's impossible. Matter cannot bring into existence all matter, for then it would have to exist in order to bring itself into existence, which is a contradiction. All matter could only be brought into existence by something other than matter. Matter can't bring itself into existence. Something other than matter is, by definition, immaterial. Uh, There is no other alternative, which was my point. And yes, if I had been given the opportunity to say this, we do know this. We know it. Eventually, Doug seeds the logic of the Kalam and postulates that we could have a timeless piece of matter. In other words, we don't have to argue backward to an immaterial, space, an immaterial, spaceless, timeless cause of the universe. We could have a material and timeless cause of the universe. This would avoid the problem of the infinite number of physical events, at least potentially. Eventually, you get to a single piece of matter existing in a state that is timeless. Okay, so let's have a timeless piece of material. Okay. You can imagine that. that. You can imagine that, right? I don't think so, because again, time just does follow upon matter. That is what time is. Time is the the measure. Can't you have Can't you have matter at zero degrees Kelvin? I must. uh, I I took chemistry at zero degree Kelvin. You have no motion, but you still have matter. Okay. I have no idea what zero degrees Kelvin is or any of that, but okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you'll see here a bit of a cessation on my part, and I don't try to hide that. He did actually object to the argument, and it wasn't something that I was familiar with. Just prior to this, I had tried to move on to a different question. I have a, a lot of questions outlined that I wanted to get to. Um, but he came back with this, and it did catch me off guard. I don't try to hide that. However, it is far from a defeater of the Klom or the problem of the infinite number of past events. And here are some problems that I have come up with in retrospect of this. The first one is that the claim is false. Zero degrees Kelvin does not produce, quote-unquote, no motion. That's just not the case. And here's some quotes from some uh, physicists on the matter. Quote, 
but matter cannot reach absolute zero because of the quantum nature of particles. This has to do with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. In parentheses, we can never know exactly both a particle's speed and position. In fact, the more precisely we know its speed, the less precisely we know its position. A second quote, there really is no physical description that allows for an atom at zero temperature. This is uh, physicist Eric Ramberg of Fermilab. If an atom could attain absolute zero, its wave function would extend across the universe, which means the atom is located nowhere. But that's an impossibility. So here's some physicists saying that this is actually impossible. And I'll leave a link in the description if you want to fact check me on that. So this was nothing more than a play on my ignorance of chemistry, which shouldn't have been hard to deduce, and a closer look proved the statement false, according to physicists who presumably have a superior knowledge of Doug and myself. Second, we also know that the initial condition of the Big Bang was extremely hot and that the universe is now cooled off. And Doug is postulating an initial condition of zero degrees Kelvin, the coldest possible temperature where there is no motion. How does something at zero degrees Kelvin get to something extremely hot if there's no motion? It simply does not. It's impossible. But even still, let us imagine, let us assume that there was once a single material thing in the entire universe, that's all that exists, and it's existing at zero degrees Kelvin, and there's absolutely no motion, zero motion. There's no other particles, there's no nothing, just this one little material thing at zero degrees Kelvin with no motion. Let's imagine that for just a second. Now, reminder, this is actually impossible according to physicists. But how do you get from that state to where we are today? How would you get here? You have to have something actualize the potential of that single material thing to become the universe that you and I now live in. How does that happen? In the absence of any motion, you could never get here. You, you, you couldn't go anywhere. You have to have something else to actualize it. If this material thing actualized its own potential to get here, that would mean that some part of it would be in motion. But then there would be time, and, and that would defeat the purpose of hypothesizing such an impossible state. If there was a time when there was a single material motionless thing, that is all there ever would have been. Well, how does God fare any better? Well, he isn't material, and that's the whole problem. The whole point is that time follows upon matter. Where there is matter, there's motion, and then there's time. God is not material, and so does not fall prey to the same follies as this impossible state of affairs. For other reasons, like the first way of Thomas Aquinas, or what uh, Dr. Edward Fraser calls the Aristotelian argument for God, we arrive at, a, at God being purely actual. That is, there's no potency in God. He is always in act, and so does not have to move from potency to act like material thing, like the material thing that Doug is postulating would have to do since it has no motion. Anyway, we eventually get on to the subject of how we know things. We completely uh, switch gears here. How confident are you that when I let go of this pen, it's going to fall? Very confident. Are you more or less confident that that God, a God, created the universe? I'm very confident that a, a uh, more actual, or less this pen. I'll, I don't. I don't know how I would be able to weigh those two. First of all, I would have to have more precise. I know how you, you know can what weigh I mean? those two. Okay. How? Repeatability. Okay. We can't well, repeat the universe, can we? <laughs> So this is cute, but it's actually the point that I want to make. We know some things through the scientific method, and we know other things through philosophical reasoning. I don't have a problem with the scientific method, and I've never pitted the scientific method against philosophical reasoning. However, the repeatability thing that Doug was stuck on actually assumes 
this this repeatability assumes the validity of an inductive reasoning which is philosophical reasoning it assumes that that's a valid way of reasoning so even on his own illustration philosophy is more fundamental which is just true of science in general philosophy is more fundamental than science and that's not a knock against science it's just the way things are and why some atheists are hesitant to accept this is completely beyond me it's it isn't a cessation on their part um I brought up a counterexample um, to this to make a point. How confident are you that something cannot be and not be at the same time and in the same way? Oh, in this universe, very confident. But I, I've just listened to, who was it? Uh, some philosophers saying that there's even a branch of philosophy where contradictions are allowed. I can't imagine that, but... Well, I sincerely hope that he can't imagine that. Uh, logical truths like the law of non-contradiction are assumed by all knowledge. In order to know that the law of non-contradiction was false, or in order to know that the law of non-contradiction does not apply in some universe, which Doug seemed to think was possible, you would have to assume the validity and universality of the law itself. For no, there could be no knowledge without an assumption of the law of non-contradiction. In other words, the law of non-contradiction is always true, no matter what universe you find itself in. What, what universe you find yourself in doesn't matter. It's a universal truth. And the point I was making is that we know this with absolute certainty. Zero doubts about the law of non-contradiction without using the scientific method. Again, it's not a knock against the scientific method, but it is a proof of the validity of philosophical reasoning. As for the rest of the interview, I'll leave a link in the description for you to watch it, but I've already reviewed most of the rest of it, or I don't feel like reviewing some parts of it, and you're more than welcome to go watch it. Uh, but moving on to the new year update, but first I want to say thanks to our patron supporters. Because of your support, I get to produce free content that spreads the uh, spreads and defends the truth of Christianity. Uh, so thank you so much, and if you want to support our mission, uh, be sure to follow the Patreon link in the description below, labeled Support Help Me Believe, and become a patron supporter. So 2019's in the books. It was a wild year. I got married. I started doing the podcast and the YouTubes. Uh, we're closing in on 500 subscribers on YouTube. And our most watched video of the year was Lauren Chen's conversion from atheism to Christianity. So congratulations, Lauren Chen. Uh, we've had something like 40 interviewees maybe. I didn't count, so don't fact check me on that one. Something around there, maybe more. And some big names. I never thought that uh, I'd get the opportunity to interview. Jay Warner Wallace was one of our very first interviews. I remember sending him an email thinking he ain't going to respond. But you'd be delighted to know that uh, you know, nobody like me is able to get in contact with these people. And they're all very um, excited to come on and do the interviews and talk. And so they really just love what they do. And it's it's really been a heck of a year. I can't believe that I'm privileged to do all this I also got some great interviews lined up for 2020. Uh, I'm going to start doing some next week, actually, so it's going to be a lot of fun getting started. However, without getting into much details, I am going to be making some changes uh, in my own life this year, and uh, I'm a bit worried that it might cut into the time that I get to spend making content. Um, I don't have, I don't make a living doing this, obviously, uh, but I do love it, and it's a really fun hobby. That being said, um, I do have to prioritize things like work and family, and so I'm still going to try and produce weekly content. I think I'll be able to do it, but I'm just warning you that you might not see as much of the interviews and that sort of stuff. Hopefully we will. Hopefully uh, I can manage to, to juggle all these things. We'll see what happens. We'll have to wait and see. But thanks so much for joining me. I uh, hope you have a wonderful new year. If you enjoyed the episode, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, leave us a review. And of course, if you want to become a Patreon supporter, follow the Patreon link in the description labeled support, help me believe, and become a supporter. My name is Hayden Clark, and this is Help Me Believe. Help me believe.